and welcome to the Close-Up Podcast, the podcast for the Film Society of Lincoln Center. My name is Michael Kresge. I'm the editorial director here at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Today I have with me three of the programmers here at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. And if you could please introduce yourselves. I'm Dennis Lim. I'm Florence Almuzini. I'm Tyler Wilson. Welcome to all of you. Um, we're here specifically to talk about the new series called Emotion Pictures, International Melodrama. It's a very diverse list of movies, and it spans 90 years of cinema, and there are more than 60 films in here. It's a survey of melodrama from around the world. And I guess there are some films that you people would expect. You have the Douglas Sirks and you have Vincent Minnelli, but it really is a, a like a wide selection of things that people may not have seen. So it would be great to get into that and start with you, Dennis, just kind of the, um, the central idea behind this series, why melodrama and why this particular selection? Yeah, I, I think this is the... This may be the biggest show that we've done at the Film Society in, in the four years that I've been here. I think it's one of the most ambitious. And exactly like you said, I mean, it's a, a series that includes films you would expect that you typically associate with melodrama and also some that you, you may not. Um, the idea was to um, trace, I guess, this, uh, this form, this genre, or whatever you want to call it, um, across time and space. Um, it's it's a genre that's, I think, typically associated with the golden age of Hollywood, with these sort of, you know, mid-century technicolor, weepies, Douglas Sirk, Nicholas uh, Ray, uh, Vincent Minnelli. Um, but obviously it is a form that is as old as cinema itself. Um, it's also a form that I think has many, uh, I, I think every culture has a melodramatic tradition in some way. And we just wanted to, you know, in this span of like three and a half weeks, nearly a month, um, give, give, give a sense of, of just the sheer range of films uh, that one might consider uh, melodrama. And you have it divided into four categories here, um, just to give people a little taste of what to expect. There's silent screen, so you have melodramas from the silent period, all of which are going to be accompanied by live piano music, right, by Donald yes. Sosin. Um, and then we have the Hollywood Golden Age, which is probably what people first think of when they think of a melodrama series. And then we have international classics, so films that this span a, a, um, a long period of time, but a lot of which are seems like they're the kind of classic art house, you know, foreign film age, right? We have films from Italy, we have films from Japan, we have films from from France. What else do we have? We have we have Mitsuguchi, we have David Lean, Matarazzo. Pasolini. And then the final section um, is something called modern, postmodern drama, which looks at some contemporary melodramas, which either deconstruct the form or try to further it in some way. And that includes such films as Clint Eastwood's The Bridges of Madison County, Scorsese's Age of Innocence, Almodovar's All About My Mother, um, of course, Todd Haynes' Far From Heaven, which we'll talk about, and Guy Madden's in there. Terrence Davies is in there, which we could also talk about, yes. which I, which was a delightful, uh, maybe surprising choice to some. But I thought the best way to tackle this was would be for each of you to kind of highlight some things that you find um, most compelling or interesting to you within the series. It's obviously way too big a survey to talk about everything. So I'd love to hear uh, from each of you what you think some of the most exciting films are. So um, do we want to start with Florence? I think I would start maybe with a silent era, uh, which for me is very, very representative of uh, the melodrama uh, genre. Back in the days, I think most of the film would be around uh, woman characters, woman figure, and the most 
maybe prominent uh, woman from is Lilian Gish. Mm -hmm. uh, her face. It, it was difficult to pick only uh, one or two films with her. Uh, I think I could have done maybe an entire survey of film with just a Lilian Gish face uh, as melodrama. So we picked like Orphan in the Storm because also she plays with her sister and we don't see that much of them together and The Wind. Uh, so we have another representation from Victor Sostrom and not just uh, the Griffiths uh, Lilian Gish film. It was good to show like the range that we could get from Batera and then going after this for Hollywood and foreign films and I'm really glad we picked like few films but they are important films I don't know who doesn't want to see a double feature of like Sunrise and the Wind just right, like right. one of the best day you can do uh, we try to pair films whenever it makes sense so people could come to see more than one film mm -hmm. especially if you travel far from like you know the city you don't want to come just for an 80 minute movie so you can stay for two though I think one Sunrise is, is more than you know most there's a lot to be taken from that with silent films there's a purity to the melodrama and I think that there is sort of something interesting about seeing them communally and this gives people the rare chance to hear live music to kind of just give themselves over to the image I think it's also interesting um, with Wonderstruck being this year Todd Haynes who's represented in this series in other ways uh, he, uh, he has this whole section in Wonderstruck that I seems to me to be an homage to the wind where Julian Moore is basically playing yeah. Lillian Gish yeah, definitely Mm. And Todd Haynes is always, you know, deconstructing form. So I was wondering if, well, is there anything you wanted to say? I think it's that? something we did. We, I did think about it when I saw Wonderstruck. I, I thought about uh, the series and I thought about the wind. And obviously Todd Haynes is very uh, connected with melodrama and classic Hollywood film that you revisit. So it was, yeah, it would have been nearly interesting to to play it in the in the retrospective, but still playing in the theater, so that didn't really make sense for us, the concept of a retrospective. Uh, no, I think Haynes, there are a good number of, you know, Todd Haynes films that, that we could have put in, in this series, including Wonderstruck. Um, and, you know, I think what Florence was saying, like, we could have shown any number, so many more silent films, and I think we could have, you know, we, we could have, even though this is, as I said, like the biggest show that we've done in, in, in some time. Uh, it was actually quite difficult to to get it down to like 60 or so titles, which is what we have here, uh, features and shorts. But you, you could do an entire series on like Latin American melodrama. You could do, you know, an entire series on, on silent melodrama, as you said. The trick was, I think, finding the balance, making sure that some of the classics were represented and also to show that this is still a relevant form, you know, which is why there is a section that you you mentioned, this modern, postmodern drama, people who are, I think, continuing to work in the tradition and, and still sort of honoring it, uh, and people who are like kind of, you know, kind of subverting it or, or, or manipulating it to their own ends. And Haynes was, 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 was an important figure to include. Um, and, you know, I think this is not like, this is a pretty obvious choice, but I'm very happy that we, we were able to, to, to show um, Douglas Sirk's All That Heaven Allows um, and Fassbinder's Ali Fury's The Soul and, and uh, Todd Haynes's uh, Far From Heaven. Uh, obviously, like uh, three films that are in conversation with one another. Fassbinder made his film in, you know, in conversation with Cirque, and then uh, Todd Haynes kind of triangulates that with with his with his update. The idea being to show that this this is still a form that I think is very important for filmmakers, and 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 to show like just the sheer number of possibilities available to to filmmakers choosing to engage with with melodramatic form. 
one of the things I've always found amazing about Far From Heaven is that it comes across as this sort of like meta cinematic object that's deconstructing itself, but that it's still so overwhelmingly emotional. Like it just completely plays as a straightforward melodrama. And it's something that I think uh, you see over and over again in some of the films you've selected for that section. Like, I think that there's a certain self-consciousness to Age of Innocence, a certain self-consciousness sure. to Bridges of Madison County, but those movies always just leave me like, an emotional wreck. I, I it's, think that's it's true to like, Yeah, but I, I think that's true to, to... Applies to classical melodrama too, because, I mean, what a lot of these films have in common is that I think just... You know, Cirque makes films that are completely, art, you know, defined by artifice as as well. You know, and I think um, Far From Heaven is is a totally Cirquean object. He, in his own way, I think Cirque was as analytical, you know, as right. as Haynes is. And I think the beauty of a lot of these films, we we talked a lot amongst ourselves about what defines a melodrama. You know, what do we include in this? And obviously, it is a pretty elastic term. But the thing that actually I kept coming back to often was artifice. Was you know, is precisely what you're talking about, just like you know, engendering emotion, often overwhelming emotion through artifice. I mean, you could say the Umbrellas of Sherbrooke by Jacques yeah. Demy also fits into that category. It's completely artificial, yet it's extremely touching and melodramatic and really beautiful to, to look at, but uh, it, it doesn't separate at all. So Yeah, Umbrellas of Sherbrooke is always a film that towed that line so brilliantly, right? I, I, every time I've seen it, I'm sort of um, flabbergasted by the the colors and the artifice and the costumes, and then at the end, I'm just... It doesn't matter what I just saw because it's 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 worked its powers on me emotionally. Was there when you were going through these films? Was there also any kind of like a requisite? Does it make you cry? Test <laughs> because so many of these films really can hit you. I don't know. Do I don't know if I cry that often in the cinema, uh, or sometimes for ridiculous reason, but uh, not really. I'm not, I don't think I, I had to make us cry. Yeah, we definitely definitely didn't have that kind of litmus test uh a little cruel <laughs> perhaps <laughs> a little um i'm also not a big movie crier tyler are you I don't oh that's know. interesting uh, no i think like as far as when i was looking at these films like not necessarily did they make me cry but how extreme they were in conveying certain emotions um i think like something like bigger than life is not necessarily something to make you cry but it's so hyperbolic at times that it's just kind of fascinating to watch yeah, bigger than life always elicits strong audience responses. There's yeah. some of those yeah. lines that are just as, as classic as comic one-liners, right? Yeah. But bigger than life is a good example of something. That, yeah, you feel it really, really strongly, and you know the film is aware of what it's doing and manipulating. But if you want to just take it as this, like I remember when I first talked about that film with my mom, who watches films a little more straightforwardly. And I, I don't, and it's brilliant. I'm not saying that she's uh, that we see films in an intrinsically different way, but. I remember her talking about, oh, you know, well, that was just terrible, the way that they prescribed cortisone back in the 50s. I said, well, you know, that's an interesting way of reading that film. It's like, true. As a, yeah, it's based on a, was it, it was a New Yorker story. It was based on a story and this truth to it. And it's, it's like a rip from the headlines kind of story. But I mean, the movie is not really about cortisone. No. I think we can say. <laughs> yeah, we didn't have a cry test, but I think... In narrowing it down, it had to be a film that I think at least one of us felt pretty strongly about because you know it, we we could have really gone into the hundreds with a with a series like this. So I think there's a f everything in here is something that one of us like feels pretty strongly about. Um, I I am going to prod until you tell me which of these movies make you cry, <laughs> if any. For me, I'll start. 
though there are many because I cried a lot of things. Make Way for Tomorrow for me, out of all the films in this series, that's the Leo McCary yeah, film from 1937, okay, that one, is that unbearable. One. And I mean that as a recommendation to people. Yeah. Definitely come see it if you haven't because it's an exquisite film. Um, but that's the film where when it was over, uh, my husband and I were watching it together. And, you know, if you've seen the movie, you know that's a problem. And when it was over, we had to turn our heads away from each other and we couldn't look at each other or speak to each other for about a half hour because it's that devastating. Also, the f- film that's considered a precursor to Tokyo Story, Ozu's film. Mm-hmm. I kind of think nothing is <laughs> <It's laughs> is heartless. As, no. Okay, I have to I, I think the film that's that's come closest for me, actually, I'm just, as I'm looking through the brochure, is uh, that, that I... Is coming to mind at least now is Secret Sunshine, which is one of the mm. more one of the newer films in this series, and I find that film completely devastating. Yeah, that's um, the Li Chang Dong film. Li Chang Dong's film, um, uh, sort of a film about grief and the idea of you know salvation and religion, and uh, I think a lot of it has to just I don't want to give anything away, but like what this heroine endures is 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 uh, is pretty overwhelming. Well, Florence and I recently re- watched uh, The Cranes Are Flying during a press screening, and I think uh, it's kind of a, it's a classic kind of going to war story, but it's, and the scope is so epic, but it's told with such economy that you kind of don't even have time to catch your breath, and I just think the ending is devastating. It's, it's kind of relentless in how many unfortunate things happen in the movie in such a short amount of time. And there's also a, kind of an overwhelming technical aspect to that film. I mean, the, sh- the shots in that film are so, uh, they're so contained. They, ha- they have these like entire worlds within these like single takes. And I for, that for some reason that always contributes to mm-hmm. uh, your emotional response, whether people realize it or not. Well, also, it's, I mean, I think her performance is, is amazing. And it's maybe recurrent for me in a lot of his films. It's interesting to see that a lot of films were directed by male, we couldn't find that many mailers directed by women, but they often, not always, because we find other examples, but focusing on one female like character and and mostly an actress. I would say probably the face of an actress was very inspiring for the filmmaker making that film. So in Cranes Are Flying, her face completely I find devastating, even if I, you know, don't like burst out like crying and and. It's also reminiscent of the Hollywood, like the, the Whippies, you know, where someone would want like Betty Davis or like one of the great actresses and just do a mirror around her and see her face and the close up and the expressions. Bridges of Madison County made, made Florence cry <laughs> for a different reason. <laughs> I'm not a strong supporter of Bridges of Madison County. Well, but, I am. But, uh, I am as well. I, I think it's I, extraordinary. I, I felt, you know, it's like, it's fine. It's not mine. I, I, I do not like Titanic at all. And I was. We thought about that a bit. We, we, we actually did, couldn't, didn't even have the option of putting it in. Uh, but it was not something. I'm I not would, a big Titanic fan. I but would I thought not it was want to, to include. put it. I think it puts melodrama to shame by being overly sentimental and ridiculous and not well directed. Overly anything. sentimental. Oh my so god! So what, what pushes a film, a melodrama, into the overly sentimental category? I mean, I think if you roll your eyes more, like every five minutes, then it do- clearly doesn't work as a mellow. Like it's it's beyond artificial. There's like nothing real about it. Are you not rolling your eyes constantly in, in, in like magnificent obsession? No, <laughs> because magnificent obsession is it's just it's like also it's a, ridiculous, but also great. But it it goes to your heart. Like Titanic doesn't. I think Titanic. It, well, I think it's a generational thing too. I know a lot of people of a certain generation who saw Titanic. Titanic was their first melodrama. I'd say like. 
of right. coworkers say. And so they have oh, this extreme have emotional old? response. <laughs> Maybe. That's <laughs> the age. Have you seen older movies before? <laughs> I'm, well, I'm not really even talking about myself. I, I, I did, it never worked its magic on me too much, actually. And I'm not a huge Titanic defender, though I do like the Celine Dion song. Oh. I think that's probably the best thing about the movie. <laughs> I think yeah. that movie's unthinkable without that song. Oh. Which is we and we, you know we had a piece in film comment on on um, movie theme songs that Andrew Chan wrote, and um, you make the case for that one. I mean, it doesn't you know it doesn't matter. It's certainly inseparable from the film, but yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, we couldn't include everything, so I, if someone felt really strongly against the film, I, I guess it, it, it's easy to eliminate. First, like we can do part two and three with so many other movies. We may, mm-hmm. um, yeah, Even given picking, what we had to leave know, out. Except for uh, Cirque, I think every filmmaker only had one movie in, so we had to pick one. There are two Nicholas like, Ray films. Okay, yeah, but no. other than that, it's just like, okay, like one was you, one Mizoguchi. Yeah, but Cirque we did because if there's one filmmaker who's associated with melodrama, it's Cirque. And mm-hmm. it's Cirque, and it's also how, you know, I also fear is the soul is important because I think Cirque's reputation dates from that period from the 70s from you know being rehabilitated by film scholarship in some way and i think the idea of the melodrama that we're talking about here uh dates from that understanding of it i think more than like you know this this form that it's it's a it's a it's a I said it's an elastic term, and I think it's like it's it's so many films could fit under the melodrama category, and I'm not sure that if you go back and look at like you know before the 70s and before the 50s, what the term, how the term melodrama was used, it was used to describe like any any type of film that was like in some way sensational or in some way exaggerated. It could be like a crime thriller, you know. But like the the term, as you can understand it, which often has to do with like they're often like female melodramas domestic maternal melodramas i think that has to do that all a lot of it comes from cirque so he was like very important to to showcase and he's the cover of this um beautiful brochure that you put together well there's also a sort of leveling uh like you know leveling the playing field aspect with melodrama that's great right because it appeals to more conventional moviegoers and it appeals to cinephiles and film scholars. I mean, it seems like it's mm-hmm. at this point, I know there was a period where it was very controversial and film scholars didn't even want to talk about melodrama early on in film studies. Mm-hmm. But at this point, it seems like everyone can agree this is an important form. Yeah, I mean, I don't think the term is used pejoratively anymore, um, although I'm sure it certainly had its did go through that period. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I don't think it's used in a negative way at all. If it had been, like, you know, you could read all reviews saying like, oh my God, it's so mellow and it was kind of condescendent, but not anymore. So, I, To go back to uh, The Long Day Closes briefly, um, it's a film that I adore, but I was surprised to see it in here. I think, and, and I've heard that response from people, not in a negative way, but oh, well, The Long Day Closes is a Terrence Davies film from 1992, um, which is this uh, more fragmented um, interiorized journey of this little boy in Liverpool in the 50s, um, Terence Davies, basically, autobiographically. Um, it's a movie that plays off of some cinematic tropes, but it's not necessarily um, a straightforward linear story. So I'd love to hear the the reasoning behind sticking that in the section that I have called modern, postmodern. Postmodern. <laughs> drama. <laughs> Whose decision was that? I don't remember. <laughs> but I mean, I, I, I love the film, uh, and I think... 
one of the things we wanted to do was to sort of expand, to, to really have a selection that was coherent, but also diverse. And to, like Tyler was saying, I think intensity of emotion was one was one factor that we, we kept in mind um, as to whether a, a, a film has melodramatic tendencies. I mean, I, I don't know if I would call it a melodrama, but I feel like it's a film that certainly engages with engages with the form. And, and density of emotion, yeah. for sure. The way it uses music to bring out emotions, considering how closely related yeah. melodramas are with music. Actually, if you go um, back to the root work, root yeah. word, the Greek, Greek word, yeah. melos, drama, is music, drama. So that's what we were thinking of when we yeah. put it in. Which is a very, a very Davies way to be. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and of course, it actually has snippets of classic Hollywood films throughout like used on the soundtrack one of which is Manelli there's a there's a yeah. passage of Meet Me in St. Louis yeah. on there which I is think very it's a, I think it's a perfect postmodern melodrama I think you're right <laughs> I've been convinced and also in that section Tyler is um, Rouge Stanley Kwan's 1987 film and um, I know this is a particular favorite of yours yeah I mean I I think it's one of the few films that are that is a melodrama that actually deals in kind of the supernatural uh, it's a ghost story and also a sort of uh, forbidden love gone wrong, but I think it has the opportunity to kind of deal in two different time periods. You know, we kind of see opulent uh, Hong Kong in the 30s and also it brings it to the, the present in the 80s. And the film was made and I think it has the benefit of kind of interacting in these two time periods in a really beautiful way and I, just the film kind of flows and to me is tragic. Stanley Kwan is, uh, I think, still an extremely underrated filmmaker, at least here. And yeah. every once in a while, his movies pop up in, at some rep program, but I think it's time for a full Stanley Kwan retro. I'm just going to plant that seed. I, I don't, I, most of the film have to be imported. There's no U.S. distributor for the Stanley Kwan, so we need to stop fundraising, <laughs> and then we can do the <laughs> Stanley Kwan retrospective. <laughs> well, In the Mood for Love is also in here, Wong Kar Wai's film, which is eternally popular. I think people just always want to give themselves over to that movie. Was that just kind of like a no-brainer choice? Yeah, it's yeah, a, you that's can't a show, no-brainer. Can't do a melodrama show and not show that, right? Because yeah. that's an, another interesting question: Is it melodrama? Why if would if it, it has be? such restrained emotions, right? In the mood for love is so much about these restrained emotions. I like I like exploding these categories. I like right. that it's a kind of a new definition. Yeah, it's restraint through excess, though, isn't it? I mean, the film is so excessive and in. in, in in some ways, I mean, like just in sheer like design and sound and music. I mean, it is like, yeah, it's excessive restraint, something, or restrained access. And, and uh, <laughs> um, I think it qualifies. And I think restraint is actually is does run through. Some of these films are are very restrained. Mm-hmm. Well, even like if you start with David Lean, like. Bridge yeah. and Contour, that's very restrained too. Bridges of Madison County mm-hmm. is pretty restrained, I think. Definitely is. It has that unforgettable final scene. <laughs> Some people are making phases about, but <laughs> set in the car. Meryl Streep's hand on that, on that, on the, the car door. Okay. Well, I guess we're not going to convince you about that. But everybody should go see it. So um, before we close, actually, is it possible for everyone to go around one more time and pick one more movie that you think might be like a hidden treasure in here that you want to tell people about? I would really like people to see Polex, which is also not a classic melodrama, 
but rarely screen and is extremely uh, intense viewing experience. Uh, it's a Lewis Carax movie from 99 uh, and, and I would really recommend that people see this and seeing it as a melodrama too. And a strange Melville adaptation. Mm -hmm. I, I do like that film a lot. I'm going to say two things. Mikio Naruse's Floating Clouds, I don't think it's like a hidden treasure, but it's what, like, one of my favorite films of all time. And we have, uh, I think it's, it is 35 millimeter print from the Japan Foundation. I think it's always an event to see that, that film. Uh, and I would also just call attention to the short films. Um, we're, we're in, we have a few shorts, um, mostly con actually all contemporary, um, made by a um, pretty interesting selection uh, of artists and filmmakers, um, uh, mostly experimental or essayistic shorts um, that we've paired. Uh, Stacy Steers, who's an animator who makes these like really beautiful handmade collage films. Um, we're pairing her films with um, Sunrise and The Wind. We have um, Mark Rappaport's uh, short essay on the recurrence of the vanity table in, in Douglas Sirk, which we're showing with All That Heaven Allows. Um, and we have Ming Wong, this... Um, artist who deals a lot with um, reenactment and melodrama and his his um, post postmodern even kind of um, riffs on imitation of life and in the mood for love we're pairing uh, his work with those films um i guess i would recommend careful i mean i love guy madden and uh um, i think that and the short film that's screening with the heart of the world um they're both visually similar and i think they're kind of love letters to early cinema and i also carry his sense of humor and yeah I, i've never seen it on film before so i'm looking forward to it i think guy madden is a great person uh to kind of like end on in a way or at least even in your viewing like watch a bunch of melodramas and then watch some guy madden and everything will just make perfect sense indeed well thank you very much uh look very much looking forward to this series it runs from december 13th to january 7th here at film society of lincoln center many of these are on 35 millimeter which is very exciting uh, most of them will be showing in the walter reed theater with a couple screenings across the street at the eleanor Bunin monroe film center thank you very much for being here thank you The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-A-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here. <laughs>